So we continue this morning in a <clears throat> series on forgiveness, and uh, we're in week four. Week one, we looked at uh, why to forgive, and the reason why we forgive is because God has forgiven us. And week two, we looked at how to forgive, and uh, looked at four steps in a process of forgiveness. Last week, we looked at uh, some virtues. I call them forgiveness virtues, humility, compassion, gentleness, patience, that we need in order to strengthen our, our, our capacity to forgive, because forgiveness is like moving uh, the soul like, you know, in a direction after it's hurt that doesn't want to move, and we need that sort of therapy for our soul with certain virtues. And this week, um, we're going to reflect on what it means for us to receive God's forgiveness. And our scripture this morning is a Psalm of David, a Psalm of Confession, just a warning, Lent's come early, Lent has come early today, um, where David, I think, shows us what it means to receive God's forgiveness. So, hear God's word to us this morning, Psalm of David, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. In your presence, you preserve, you preserve me from trouble and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. And I think I cut off the psalm. There's more to this psalm. <laughs> so I'm going to read the rest of it from my Bible. <laughs> it's a good thing I have a Bible, huh? I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, and I, will not counsel, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will, stay not, it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Pray with me. Lord, we give you thanks for your word, and we give you thanks that you have forgiven us in Jesus. And we just pray today that we would learn what it means to truly receive forgiveness in the depths of our heart and the foundations of our life. I pray, that any, I pray for any here who struggle to believe that you do forgive them and that you love them, that they would um, experience um, your forgiveness and grace in a deep way in their life. In the name of Jesus. So uh, this whole series is really about, you know, horizontally, right, really looking at uh, what does it mean to forgive? How do we become a forgiving people? And uh, the, the challenge, of course, is that forgiveness is hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Um, and so I'm trying to, for the first four weeks, really um, just help equip us um, to understand what forgiveness is, but also give us the resources we need in order to forgive. And, and today, 
I really want to focus on this theme of, of receiving God's forgiveness because one of the reasons, one of the, the big barriers to offering forgiveness to others is that when you, when you struggle to receive God's forgiveness in your own life, it's very hard to give it to others. I mean, that sometimes is the deepest root of why we can't forgive others is because we don't know what it means to receive God's forgiveness or we struggle to do that. Um, so I want to remind you of the forgiveness equation in the Bible. The forgiveness equation is this. You should forgive others because God forgave you. That's the, that's the forgiveness equation. It's repeated everywhere. Last week we looked at it in Colossians. Paul puts it this way. Bear with one another. If one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. But what happens um, when we have difficulty receiving God's forgiveness? What happens when we don't? We simply don't believe we've been forgiven, or we can't forgive ourselves. Now, something that I have heard uh, people share with me over the years, uh, more than a few times, as I'm counseling them as a pastor, is, I know that God forgives me, I just can't forgive myself. I know that God forgives me, I just can't forgive myself. Um, people don't just struggle to forgive a other people. They actually struggle to forgive themselves. And I used to be a lot more dismissive of um, today, uh, the talk of self-forgiveness than I am today. As you'll see, I, I still think it's a, a very prog problematic um, concept as a, as a Christian. Nevertheless, there's no denying the fact that many people really, truly struggle to forgive themselves. They really struggle to, to, you know, we talk about self-acceptance, to, to let go of wrongs they've done. And I think the increasing rates of death by despair in our culture, whether it's suicide or death through overdose or alcoholism, various forms of self-harm, are connected with this phenomenon of, of not being able to forgive ourselves. Um, and again, this is not just people out in the world this is also people in the church. Um, I think this is a, a broad reality for many people that it seems that even though a lot of people here and they might even believe in a notional sense that God loves them, that God forgives them, it doesn't seem to help them in terms of how they feel about themselves, how they see themselves. They don't feel forgiven. They don't feel loved. Uh, they don't feel personally worthwhile as human beings. And God's forgiveness doesn't seem to change anything. And so that, that's the challenge today, right? How, what are we to make of this? What are we to say to this? How can we help people who are in these places? How, how do we receive help when that's us, when we feel that way, when God's forgiveness doesn't seem to move or change things? Now, I think that the right answer to this question is still the answer, which is to receive God's forgiveness, <laughs> That's going to be my answer. Receiving God's forgiveness is still the only way that we can learn to uh, forgive ourselves, but also to accept ourselves for who we are. However, I think what we need here is a deeper, more uh, psychologically developed understanding of what it means to receive God's forgiveness. And so that's the goal today. And David gives us that in this psalm, in Psalm 32, and also Psalm 51, which is also kind of in the background as I'm reading this psalm. Um, David 
and he actually says this. He's like, I want to instruct you in the way. I'm going to instruct you in the way you should go. He's, he's, he's a teacher in a sense. I'm going to show you what it means. And he starts with this incredible statement about the therapeutic promise of forgiveness. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, the word blessed, blessing or blessed is the Bible's language for happiness. Happy are those that are forgiven by God. And David starts his psalm of confession and ends his psalm of confession uh, reflecting on these benefits of being recipients of God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness brings true liberation, true freedom and joy to the very heart of our sense of self. And he, he ends the psalm by saying, be glad in the Lord. And he's speaking about the forgiven one, right? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. So, happiness, gladness, rejoicing, these are the fruit of receiving God's forgiveness, right? And they're the very opposite, the polar opposite in many ways, and how uh, the place we find ourselves when we can't forgive ourselves. So the question is, well, well, how do we get there? What's the pathway that David gives us. And the pathway is confession and repentance. That's the pathway. It's confession and repentance. Um, the pathway to receiving God's forgiveness um, begins with learning what it means to confess our sins to God. That's what this psalm is about. But, you know, I think sometimes when we think about confession, and even what we did earlier in our service, right, it can feel sometimes transactional. You know, we go to God, we confess our sins, and then we're done, we received it, and yet it's, it doesn't, it's, it feels like surface level. And I think what David is doing here in this psalm is he's giving us a, a picture of deep confession. What does it mean to deeply confess your sins? What does it mean to, to um, he wants to get at the root, right, of what it means to be a self before God. He wants to get at the foundations of our personhood when it comes to confession. Um, because the deeper, in a sense, we confess our sins, the deeper the grace of God and the forgiveness of God can seep down into us, right? There, this is so important. You know, it, oftentimes it's like, oh, the preacher's talking so much about sin. <laughs> uh, too much about sin. But the shallower your view of sin is, the shallower your view of grace will be. That, that's so important to understand. So if sin is just kind of like, eh, you know, it's not that big a deal, then also grace is going to be not that big a deal. And part of the reason the grace doesn't change is because we've really never made a deep confession or really come to terms with, with our sin. Now, I told you Lent was coming early today, right? Um, so I want to make a brief detour, though, <clears throat> an important detour. And the first step in making a deep confession of our sin requires a right thinking about the self. Um, and, and the right thinking about the self is this, is we ha you have to develop a God-centered view of the self. You, you have to develop a God-centered view of the self. The whole of the Psalms gives us this understanding of the self. Um, a God-centered view of the self is one in which the primary, most fundamental relationship of your life is God, right? This is famously stated by St. Augustine in his, in his book, The Confessions. Lord, as he prays, Lord, you have made me for yourself 
and my heart is restless until it rests in me, right? God made us for himself. Our hearts are restless until it rests in God. To, to have a God-centered understanding of the self is to understand that I always exist before him. I'm always in his presence. That actually God is closer to me than I am to myself. And that at the end of the day, at the end of the life, the, the one and only person that matters to whom I'm accountable, and I will have to, to, to come in judgment before, is the Lord. This is, this is what, what I mean by a God-centered view of the self. And it is uh, key to understand the psalm and really the, all, the whole of the scriptures. And it is um, very different <laughs> uh, from what I'll call the, the modern uh, therapeutic understanding of the self. The modern therapeutic understanding of the self is this, that the most fundamental and primary relationship of the self is to the self. That's, that's the modern therapeutic understanding of what it means to be a self. The self stands before the self, right? You be you, right? Um, there's a Lizzo song in which she sings about being her own soulmate. I love me best, right? Um, if you were to put it in uh, a prayer of Augustine, it might be something like, I am made for myself and I am restless until I rest in me. Right? I mean, that, that is the explicit and also the hidden curriculum of the modern self. And so that means that the opinion that matters most about myself is my own. Only I can judge me, right? Um, what other people think about you doesn't really matter. What, what matters most is your own opinion about yourself. So this, you can, if this is the understanding of the self, you can understand why self-forgiveness becomes such an important thing, right? Because if the primary relationship in my life is to myself, then being able to forgive myself is, is of utmost importance. And really, this idea of self-forgiveness, which really, you know, um, you don't find talk of self-forgiveness much earlier than 50 years ago, it really grows out of this idea of the modern therapeutic self, is that my primary relationship is to myself, and that means that I, in a sense, the self, we, we are the moral unit center of the universe, each individual self. We are, we are the moral center of our own universes, and, but this is a problem when you can't forgive yourself, right? If you're in a situation where you can't forgive yourself, you have no other higher court of appeal. Even God's forgiveness can't help you, right? And then you're trapped, right? And so, um, Solving the problem of self-forgiveness, I think, requires a really radical step. It involves developing a sense of the self, which is God-centered, not self-centered, right? Uh, in which I'm not the moral center of the universe. God is. And so here's the first step. The first step in learning to forgive yourself is learning to stop judging yourself. And I want to come back to 1 Corinthians 4. It is not your job to judge yourself. Only God can do that. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, the context here is very important. Paul and um, Apollos have come under criticism and scrutiny from the Corinthians and their ministry, and they're evaluating and they're judging them based upon, you know, they find them underwhelming, but not very impressive. 
And Paul is defending his, his apostleship. And he says this. I want to read the whole thing because it's very important. This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they should be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one of you shall receive his commendation for God. In essence, what Paul is saying is like, okay, what you think about me and my ministry um, doesn't, it's not like Paul is unconcerned. He's like, he's not like, I don't care what you think. But in a sense, on this particular point, it's like what you think about me doesn't matter. What matters most, what will keep me up at night is God's opinion of me. God wants me to be faithful. As long as I'm faithful, I'm okay. But I don't even know if I'm being faithful. That's, I mean, Paul demonstrates a great amount of humility here, right? I don't even judge myself. That is the Lord's work. It is God's work to render judgment because God sees all, God knows all, and God will disclose all. And so this, this is so important because it Receiving God's forgiveness starts when we stop judging ourselves. And by judging here, I'm not, I'm going to come back to talk about this when we talk about confession. But, but to judge yourself or to judge another human being is to, in a sense, like render a final verdict. It's a kind of, this is who you are. Or, this is who I am. I can't change. This is who I am. Or, I'm, you know, it's a, it's a sense that it, it, it's presumptuous and it's arrogant not just when we say it of others who we know far less about than we know ourselves, but for Paul, even of myself. I don't even know myself well enough to, to judge myself. Friends, stop judging yourselves. <laughs> I mean, this is so liberating. I, like, if you can do, it's not easy. It's something you have to come back to. Again. But if you can stop even judging yourself, it's, that actually helps you to not worry about what other people think about you. And when this happens, um, when we stop judging ourselves, the problem of self-forgiveness begins to dissolve away. Because I don't regard my own personal opinion, even about my, myself, as the final word. And it's easier for me to, to let go of my own negative opinions about myself and my own self-recriminations. So, um, Receiving God's forgiveness and instead of the alternative to judging myself is confessing my sin to God. That's the alternative, right? And, and so not judging ourselves doesn't mean that we don't evaluate our, our, our character and our behavior and the things we do against the standard, nor even that we, we don't allow others to hold us accountable um, to God's word and God's standard. But judging myself and confessing my sin to the Lord and to others when I've done them wrong is a very different thing. And this brings us back to Psalm 32. Now, David begins his instruction on confession um, where you'd least expect it. And I've already mentioned this. He starts with happiness. Blessed, happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Um, now, when we think about confessing sin, the word happy is usually not the word that comes to mind. Usually it's, you know, uh, morose, miserable, sad, pathetic, humiliated, right? We, we tend to associate deep confession 
like true sorrow over sin with something we don't want to, like it's a humiliating thing that we don't want to go to. It's the very opposite of, of being joyful and happy. And in our culture, again, a lot of times the, the advice about learning to forgive yourself is we'll just stop ruminating on the mistakes you made or the way, things you don't like about yourself and start focusing on the positive thing. What are the things you love about you, right? <laughs> what are your strengths? What are, what are the things that make you good and noble? <clears throat> and David, he gives us this so countercultural <laughs> pathway to true happiness. And it, it, kinda, it starts with coming to terms with just how broken how sinful, how prone to evil I can be in my life. And admitting that and confessing it full and clean before the Lord. This is what actually will lead. And what makes happiness, uh, what makes forgiveness, what makes us happy is actually that on the other side of the confession is true forgiveness and grace. And I, I think the ordering here is so important. Uh, David starts with the gospel. Uh, he doesn't start with the law. And, and this, is, this is important. What I mean is this, is that he doesn't start con- with his psalm of confession, um, you know, just with uh, the condemnation of God or the, the awesome weight of God's law bearing down upon us and then creating a sense of our own misery and, and need for forgiveness. He starts with this promise that, that the forgiven person is the happy person, right? And I think this is important when it comes to confessing our sins at a really deep level, when we really look inward and see how messed up we are. Uh, Because if we don't have the assurance that God is going to forgive, it is so hard to be completely honest with ourselves and with others, right? Um, David says there, uh, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's a way that, I think that reference is really fascinating. Uh, David says in Psalm 51 about uh, renewing me from within, this, this idea that sin is deception. It always is self-deceiving, but, but f- real confession that's surrounded by the promise of God's grace allows us um, to not be self-deceitful. Just look at who we really are without fear that if we really see who we are, it'll ruin us. It'll, it'll bring us under. Because again, our, our, our defense mechanisms psychologically are so powerful for survival that they keep us from actually seeing ourselves as we really are oftentimes because we couldn't handle it. But the promise of God's grace allows us to see ourselves without fear of condemnation and rejection. Now David goes on here. He goes on to make the point that a lot of times... Um, the reason why we're so miserable in life or we're in pain or we're struggling is because of unconfessed sin. Um, and he says, um, when he didn't confess his sin, this is what he says, when I, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by heat of the summer. I think this is very uh, humorously illustrated with the, the character of Tony Soprano from the show The Sopranos. You know, Tony Soprano is a, a New Jersey mob boss. You know, he's got a loving wife and kids and, you know, a nice house in Jersey. Um, 
Tony is, uh, he regularly goes and sees a therapist. Um, but Tony is also, he's a murderer and a thief and a liar and an adulterer. But he's, he's a completely miserable and unhappy man. And he goes and he'll go to therapy and see his therapist, who is a woman. And, and he'll, he'll, you know, he's always the victim, right? <laughs> and he's very self-pitying. And what makes this funny is, is that as a viewer, everybody knows the reason that Tony is so miserable is because he's a terrible person. And he does terrible things. And his therapist knows this, but she can't really tell him this, right? Now... This is an exaggeration, I think, of, of where we are. But in many ways, I think our culture is kind of like Tony Soprano. It's like we're unwilling to see the, just the connection that stares us in the face between our unhappiness or our misery and our own sinfulness. And David, he wants us to see that there is a connection here. There is a connection. And, and when we, we don't confess sin, it's, it causes us to waste away. It, it's like, a, it's like a, a flower that shrivels up in the sun. Now, I want to be clear that um, there's a lot of sources of unhappiness and, and struggle in our life that are not related to hidden sin. I want to be very clear about that. <laughs> there's a lot of things that we suffer that aren't our fault, necessarily. And yet, you will, in our culture, as a general whole, if you're feeling bad about yourself, almost never will, will, will somebody say, well, maybe you've done something wrong that you really haven't confronted. And David's very clear about this, right? We have to, you know, why does, you know, in the body, when you hurt yourself and you have pain that develops in your body, it's your body's way of saying, hold on, slow down, right? Pay attention. There's something that's broken here that you need to attend to. And, it's, and it can be the same psychically as well, that God allows us to feel a certain affliction in order to turn us away from uh, even worse affliction, and David is making the point here that, that confession of sin is truly therapeutic. Confession of sin is truly therapeutic. It restores, it is healing, and it can deliver us, as he says, from the rush of great waters. But I think this really depends upon getting the right orientation when it comes to confessing. And this brings us to the, the last point I want to discuss, which is the vertical nature of confession. What David shows us both in this psalm and also in Psalm 51 is that, that confession of sin is vertical. It starts vertically, not horizontally. What I mean, for, to make a vertical confession means that God is the object of my confession. I'm, I'm not confessing sin to myself. I'm not confessing sin to another person. It is to God, first and foremost. David says, I acknowledge my sin to the Lord. <clears throat> I acknowledge my sin to you, and, you did not, and, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God is the object, right? Or again, in Psalm 51, famously, David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is right, evil in your sight. Now, what does David mean, against you and you only I have done evil in your sight? Now, if you remember the circumstances of Psalm 51, it's David's most famous prayer of confession. And what's happened? David took another man's wife and committed adultery and got her pregnant. And then, to cover it up, arranged to have this, this man killed on the front lines of battle. <laughs> and then David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, wait a minute. Didn't he sin against Uriah, the man he had killed? 
Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against Israel by betraying their trust? How can David say, against you and you only have I sinned? David is not, he's not denying that in the sense he sinned against him, but David is using sin in a very specific sense here. That the, the root of it all, he's going to the very source in his heart of his sinfulness starts with his relationship with God. That, that the deepest root of his offense started in this invisible moment in his own heart before he committed any acts in his relationship to God. We disobeyed, and he broke at least five of the, of the Ten Commandments. See, the wrongness of his wrong originates in his relationship with God. The wrongness of his wrong originates in his relationship with God. There's a sense that he turns away from God, and one of the consequences of his turning away from God is that he sins against others as well. And so when David says here again in, uh, in, in our psalm, I, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now that seems somewhat repetitive or redundant, like why, you know, the iniquity of my iniquity? What does David mean here? He's, he's getting at, so what is it that makes sin so wrong? Is it simply that when I sin, I hurt other people? Or when I sin, I hurt myself? That's generally how we think about sin. And so any sins, any things that are called sins, that don't seem to hurt other people or hurt ourselves for us, in general, we don't see as a big deal. It doesn't keep us up at night. In, in fact, sometimes we even, yeah, kind of look the other way. But what makes sin so wrong is, is that it's rooted in, as, a, as disobedience and rebellion against our Creator. This, again, is what the Puritans mean when they, call, they talk about the sinfulness of sin. Um, what makes sin so sinful is not that it does self-harm or other harm, but that, that it is against God. This is what I mean by the vertical application piece. Vertical, you got to go vertical with your confession. Now, the question is this, you're probably wondering, okay, well, how does this help me in receiving God's forgiveness? What, what's the application here? It's this. You will not experience the deep transforming power of forgiveness until the focus of your confession shifts away from yourself to God, and it shifts to God, Right? Very often, whether we realize it or not, we are often the object of our own repentance, not God. I feel sorry about my sin because of the way it has clearly hurt myself and others, right? I feel guilt and I feel shame for my sin because of the terrible consequences that it has brought into my life and to the lives of others. I feel sorry about it and I feel embarrassed, it makes me look bad. But, and these are all true things, right? A lot of times, what makes us feel so shameful and so guilty is just simply that other people have seen us really mess up, and we've made ourselves look really bad, and we're embarrassed, and we're ashamed, and we know we've hurt people, and they tell us they hurt us, and this is so hard. And, and that's not wrong that these things are, you know, that's reality. But a lot of times our repentance is simply because everybody saw, <laughs> right? But deep repentance means that I go beyond just that and I realize I've actually offended in deep, I've sinned. This is what David means. It's like, against you and you only have I sinned. The reality is this, until we begin to repent at this deep level, 
at, at, the, at the foundations of the self <laughs> in relationship to God. Um, when we are in ourselves or others are still the primary object of our repentance, we do not change. <laughs> There's a way that we can actually even still be kind of attached to our sin. Why is it that sometimes we kind of repent again and again and again of the same sin? Where it seems to just have a power that, that doesn't go away. And now there's a lot of answers to this question. There's not just one, but I want to give you one answer. <laughs> if we're honest, it's that we still love that sin. <laughs> and we can only bring ourselves to feel bad about it when it, we see it hurts others or it hurts ourselves. Again, God must be the object of our confession, not ourselves. If we want to escape the, the trap of self-forgiveness, we have to go vertical. You have to go vertical with your confession of sin. What makes sin sinful is that it is not self-harm or, God har or other harm, but it is against the Lord. <clears throat> sin separates us from God, first and foremost. And this is so hard, and I think it's so hard for us to even know whether we do this or not, but, but God is the center of the moral universe, not us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is to recognize that God is God and I am not. That God is in the place of judgment and I am not in the place of judgment. And when I, my repentance can focus in this way, there's a way that now this deep repentance allows deep grace to come deep and in, come into my life. There is a, um, the image of sin in the Hebrew Bible and the, it has this idea of burden that's on our back. It's like this enormous burden that weighs us down. And that's what it's like to have sin, <laughs> to not be able to forgive yourself or to feel true, to feel that guilt. It's like this enormous weight and this burden that just weighs us down. Sometimes even our very bodies feel it, but psychologically we just feel this oppression. And the word for forgiveness and, and the imagery of forgiveness in the, in the Old Testament has the idea of, of rolling a weight off our shoulders. It's rolling the burden off of our shoulders. So no longer do we feel that, that weight and that oppression. Dear friends, <laughs> I want you to know that God's forgiveness for you is real. Sin is real, but God's forgiveness is even real. Sin is heavy, but God's forgiveness is even heavier. And I just want you to re remind yourselves that you know, we're going towards a season of Lent when we focus on the cross. And on the cross, what we do is we look at the way that he took the weight of the sin upon his shoulders. You can't bear the weight of your sin or the sin of anybody else. Let Jesus bear that weight and receive his forgiveness. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we need your help um, even to receive your forgiveness, which is a gift. We don't, we, we're so broken, we're so messed up that we don't even know how to receive the good gift of your love and grace and mercy in our lives. And we, we even mess that up. And so, Lord, by your spirit, uh, work in our hearts, give us um, true self-understanding. Help us to know that you are the Lord, you are the center that we, we don't have to keep judging ourselves and judging others, but we can just surrender ourselves to you and, and to experience that blessedness which David um, talks about. 
And so I just pray this morning for any who are struggling that they would experience that true blessedness of um, a forgiven life. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.